Welcome to the Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota podcast. Safe Passage for Children's mission is to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. This series of episodes will take a closer look at our short weekly policy blog, or eBrief, to give you an inside look into Minnesota child welfare legislation, policies, and practices happening right now in Minnesota affecting abused and neglected children, as well as those who work with or care for them. It is our goal that this podcast is educational, informative, and bold, increasing collective knowledge on these issues, as well as raising our voice to speak up for the needs and the safety of vulnerable Minnesota children. If you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Stick around for this week's eBrief podcast episode featuring Safe Passage for Children's Executive Director, Rich German. Did child abuse actually go down during COVID? Many observers expected child abuse to increase during COVID because it would be hidden from mandated reporters, which would give abusers free reign. However, this JAMA Pediatrics article, and JAMA is the Journal of the American Medical Association, asserts that child maltreatment decreased during COVID as measured by Child Abuse-Related Emergency Department, or ED, visits. Conversely, there is an AAP News, and the AAP stands for the American Academy of Pediatrics, an AAP News article which demonstrates that while visits were indeed fewer, they were more serious, with 50% more, relatively, requiring hospitalization. So which interpretation of what happened is true? The JAMA article draws broad conclusions from pretty limited data, but the AAP News report doesn't explain the decrease in ED visits. So more information is needed. For example, did fewer parents bring their children to hospitals because they feared getting COVID? Or perhaps increased income from the child allowance and the stimulus checks actually did reduce maltreatment, as some say. So pending better data, conclusions based on just these few data points should be considered hypotheses and not facts. So going into this in more detail, both the JAMA article, which again is the Journal of the American Medical Association, and the AAP story, again the American Academy of Pediatrics, were based in large part on what is the grimly entitled Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report article, which is by the Centers for Disease Control, as of December 2020. And there's a citation to this article that you can get a link to in the written version of this podcast on our website, which is safepassageforchildren.org. Now, the JAMA article starts out with this assertion that the rates of child abuse appear to have fallen in 2020. The conventional wisdom about this all along has been that while reports of child abuse have decreased, as mentioned correctly in the article from 20% to 70%, depending on the state, the actual abuse may be unchanged or actually have increased. The authors dismissed the usual explanation for this, which is that teachers are not seeing children and therefore not reporting abuse, because they point out accurately again that only 21% of child maltreatment reports are made by teachers. 
What they didn't bring up is that in most years, 70% plus of maltreatment reports are made by mandated reporters. And that includes not just teachers, but also other professionals like child care workers, coaches, medical people. So the idea that child abuse reports have dropped because mandated reporters aren't seeing children is still a credible hypothesis, which I think the JAMA article too quickly dismisses in our estimation. Another issue is that the CDC data that this is based on is more than a year old. And of course, we'd want conclusions to be based on some more current data. The authors of the JAMA article do cite some more recent studies around protective factors, mainly measuring that parents felt closer to their children as a result of COVID. But looking at just the 2019 and 2020 data on the emergency department visits that's in these charts in this article, well, both the JAMA and the AAP articles agree that the absolute number of emergency department visits went down. The CDC charts illustrate that the percentage of the ED visits related to child abuse and neglect that required hospitalization spiked from 2.1% of hospital ED visits to 3.2%. Now, that's, that's a big increase. That's a 50% increase. And this happened really most markedly in the few weeks immediately after President Biden declared a national emergency. Uh, and that point, at that point, there was a, a pretty dramatic-looking spike and the chart showing the percentage of ED visits requiring hospitalization. So, in other words, fewer visits overall, but a much higher percentage of them being serious enough to put the kids in the hospital. In terms of less overall abuse, it does seem unlikely to me that parents would stop harming their children immediately because a politician declared a pandemic. So you picture someone with their raised fist, as it were, stopping in midair as they were about to strike the kid because they saw the president on TV. More likely is that people avoided going to the emergency department unless they ch thought the child might actually die. And this hypothesis would do a better job of explaining the number of visits going in one direction and the seriousness of the injuries in the other. So while the kind of, you know, I would say proclamation or grand announcement flavor of the JAMA article makes me uncomfortable, and by that I mean they seem very confident of their conclusions, even though there's still lots of gaps in the data, I want to say in their favor that medical personnel in the Twin Cities have been echoing some of the same themes of the JAMA report from the very beginning of the pandemic. They, too, noticed the drop in emergency department visits but thought that at least some of that might be attributed to an actual decrease in maltreatment. Then recently, uh, on the other hand, as we've come out of the pandemic, there have been one or two rebounds locally where there's been again an increase in particularly serious cases. So if you look at the charts in this CDC weekly report, even during 2020, the number of emergency department visits for child abuse seemed to be catching up again with the 2019 data while both the number and percentage of ED visits resulting in hospitalization continued to be higher. So if we put together all of this uh, and, and we're able then to look at 2021 and 22 data, we might see if the trend continued that there is no longer a drop in emergency department visits. So there's a lot of pieces of information there, some of them going in one direction and some in another. Uh, but I think the net is that local people in the medical community have tended more to agree with this JAMA interpretation than not. So 
Another JAMA theme in that article emphasizes protective factors. For example, that proportionately more women tend to be unemployed and therefore home with the children, and women statistically are less likely to physically abuse or sexually assault the children in the household. In addition, while the theory has been that the secrecy afforded uh, by COVID for abusers works in one direction, namely that they are more free to abuse children, the other idea is that in some cases, more people in the household may be a protective factor, basically because it's harder to sexually assault a child when there are other people in the household. And also there may be some inhibitions about just kind of losing it when there are other adults present. Looking at it from another angle, the JAMA article also reported on a survey of parents that they did with the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, Prevent Child Abuse America, and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. And among other findings, they suggest that despite the loss of employment, the federal supports really helped families get through the crisis. There's also some evidence presented in the JAMA article, citing the Institute for Family Studies, which did a national survey of youth, uh, that points out that historically when people go through a trauma together, it makes them closer, and the results of this survey tended to reinforce that. So taken together, this information suggests that children in some families fared better during the pandemic, and in other families they fared worse. And again, I emphasize in this discussion the word suggests and hypothesis, because as in so many other areas of child protection and foster care these days, as well as in many aspects of our common life generally, we are often too quick to accept as a fact a theory that simply has been repeated a lot. So the people who were skeptics from the start that the drop in child maltreatment reports actually masked a steady rate or an increase in actual maltreatment turned out to have some data in support of their position. On the other hand, it's far too early to declare that fewer children were actually abused because COVID brought children and their parents closer together, and also because the impact of federal economic support substantially offset other losses in income. So in general, before we start making conclusions about what happened during COVID, let's let some time go by. In terms of broad economic public policy, we will want to know if COVID significantly strengthens the case for more economic supports, such as childcare allowance or rental supports or universal minimum wage. Regarding child maltreatment more specifically, down the road, will we discover more injuries that occurred during this period that are diagnostic of abuse but were never reported at the time? And is there yet to come a post-COVID catch-up phase where child abuse that was not identified begins to surface once children get back to school and childcare? And are we going to see more long-term indicators of severe trauma in terms of children's mental health cases? And then much longer term, we know that it takes people many years often to come to terms with abuse that they suffered as children. So what will children self-report 30 or 40 years from now as adults? There are many instances where they may have been abused but never said anything. So there are many chapters yet to be written in this story. So as we said in the beginning, we should treat any research that comes out as helping to fill in part of the puzzle rather than drawing a complete picture of the pandemic that we can tie a bow on and put in the history books. Well, with that, I want to thank you, Rich, for sharing your time and your expertise on these issues. Again, if you know someone who cares about children, 
be sure to share this podcast with them. Until next time, this is Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, working to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential.